Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 19th, 2023, Tuesday. Later this week, I'm going to New York City. I'll fly into Newark, and I will get the train into Penn Station, a catastrophic attempt to rebuild the railway infrastructure of New York, and then I'll get the subway, which is archaic, which uh, needs massive renovation, billions, probably trillions of dollars. What it all speaks to, of course, in New York is the failure to get big things done. And it's true throughout America. It's not just New York, where I live, San Francisco. Uh, The same is true, especially in terms of travel infrastructure. America doesn't seem to be able to get big things done. Uh, which is exactly the subject of our show today. How Big Things Get Done is in a really interesting new book by the world's leading expert on getting big things done, Bent Flevberg. He uh, taught for many years at Oxford. Um, he's acknowledged as uh, the world's leading expert on mega projects, and he's joining us today. Uh, the book is short or on the long list for the FT uh, Best Business Book of the Year. Ben, where are you? Where are you talking to me from? I'm in Oxford, and I actually still teach at Oxford, and I teach at the IT University of Copenhagen. Wow. Well, you certainly get big things done, Ben. Um, <laughs> am I right on New York? Is is it Exhibit A in terms of or America in general about the failure these days to get big things done? Yes, but first, let me thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, Andrew. And uh, back to New York. Um, it's not just New York, as you in- indicated, it's all of the United States. So the United States has had a huge cycle of infrastructure investment, you know, 100 years ago, plus minus uh, a few decades. The Golden Gate Bridge, in- which is probably a m- remarkable achievement. A remarkable achievement, but of course all that infrastructure is now coming to the end of their life cycles. And that's what we're seeing. So a lot of infrastructure is crumbling, as we see in the United States and in the UK too, and it's beginning to happen in Europe also. So this is just a a consequence, you know, of of having built a lot of infrastructure earlier that now we have crumbling infrastructure. Uh, The book is subtitled um, The Surprising Factors That Determine the Fate of Every Project from Home Renovations to Space space Exploration and Everything in Between. Um, We're going to get to some of those surprising factors. A less surprising factor, Ben, I'm guessing, is is politics. I mean, when it comes to America in particular, one of the, it seems to me, one of the central reasons, maybe it's because I myself am preoccupied with politics, but one of the, the, the central reasons is the uh, the failure of the American political system to actually get anything done in this country. That is a special um, American thing, yes. So, of course, the ultimate example is pork barrel politics, you know, where you give things uh, to politicians in a certain state in order to have them vote for something for you in Washington to, to take the federal uh, state relationship. And yeah, that, that creates a lot of inefficiencies if you look at it from an infrastructure effectiveness point of view, 
because the political criteria are not necessarily the criteria that need to be met in order to build effective infrastructure. So yes, that is an issue. Politics is an issue everywhere, though, not only in the United States, but the U.S. system has a setup that makes it particularly uh, extreme in this sense. As I said, I, I, I half introduced you correctly, Ben. I said you're the world's leading expert in getting big things done, uh, and, you, and you now uh, you do teach at Oxford. I thought you had previously taught at Oxford, but you're still at Oxford. Um, how did you get into all this? And we're going to get into Lego later. You're, of course, uh, I'm sure you grew up um, playing with Lego. Um, is this something in, in your childhood or your intellectual development that got you particularly interested in big projects and getting big things done? It, it's, it is in my childhood, and, and Lego is part of it, but that's actually not the main thing. The main thing is that uh, I basically was taken to construction sites uh, from I was as, as far back as I can remember, from when I was a baby. And uh, my father worked on construction sites, and uh, you know, whenever he, he was working on some construction site nearby, I would go visit first with my mother and later alone, you know, and I found it really fascinating. I just love to be on these construction sites to see all the stuff that was going on, the smells, the fire, the noises and so on. So that's a very early fascination. That's just tattooed into my nervous system. And I remember one day when, when I think I was nine years old and my, my father and I were working in the garden and he asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, and I said, I want to be like you, daddy. <laughs> and he pulled my arm and said, no, you're not going to be like me. You're going to university. That, that was his and my mother's ideal that me and my brothers would go to university. And we did, you know, but I found a, a way around back into the construction sites by studying a big project. So that, that's really at the root, you know, this is the reason why I, I later, when I, when I uh, got a job as a professor in the university, I started studying, and even as a student, I started studying projects. There's the old joke, Bent, of course, when it comes to teaching. Teachers teach, people do. I'm surprised, given your interest in getting big things done, that you didn't keep the hard hat on and become an engineer or an architect, or someone who actually gets big things done rather than studying how big things done. Were you ever attracted to to the uh, to the life of the engineer, the project manager? Yes, I was, and I've had the opportunity several times. You know where, so I do work in practice actually, but as an advisor and as a consultant. But but right on the construction sites, you know, and for sometimes for months on end on projects that have gone wrong, and that the client now needs to get back on track, and they ask me to help. And after doing things like that successfully, <laughs> you 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 might get, and I have gotten offers to actually become permanently involved on projects like that. And I have taken a few days out every now and then to really think it over. But there's something extremely attractive uh, to being in a university because another thing that uh, has always attracted me is to follow my curiosity. I'm a really curious person. I really want to understand what's going on in the world. So in addition to want to be on construction sites, I also want to be free to actually explore what I want to explore without anybody telling me what I have to study or not. And that's the freedom you have in a, a university, so-called academic freedom. It's a real thing, and I've certainly experienced it in my academic life, still do. And, uh, and, uh, and that's so attractive that I've never been willing to give it up. How do you define, Ben, a big thing? I mean, for academics, a big thing is a PhD. 
for writers like myself, a big thing is a book. When does a big thing become a big thing? A PhD is definitely a big thing, often a life-transforming big thing for the PhD student. And a book is a big thing. A house renovation is a big thing. Uh, you know, adding to your building is a big thing. Uh, it's relative to uh, what who you are and, and what your life is like, what your finances are and so on. So you can't come up with one firm definition, like uh, anything that is uh, more expensive than this dollar amount is a big thing or this size or whatever. It depends on, on who you are and what you're doing. And we make that very clear in the book. And we have examples from people's private lives, you know, putting on a party, a festival, writing a book is an example in the book, doing a movie in the book, but also building the Empire State Building and the California high-speed rail line uh, and so on. So it's, it's, it's relative in that sense. For the really big projects that I study, I usually say that anything costing more than a billion dollars is a big project. Elon Musk, as I'm sure you know, doesn't get a great press in the US. A lot of people don't like him. They think he's a megalomaniac and, and somewhat psychotic. I, I'm, I think my sense is there's some truth to that. Uh, but he's certainly someone drawn to big things. He announced today that he was going to charge people to be on Twitter, which I'm sure will ignite another firestorm. But he's certainly willing to treat Twitter as a big thing and reinvent it. Um, Tesla was a big thing. Uh, everything he does, SpaceX seems to be a big thing. Are certain types of people uh, attracted to big things? Is Elon Musk uh, an example of the kind of fellow attracted to big things? I think he is. And, and uh, no matter whether he's controversial or not, he's extremely good at building big things. He understands the basic physics of how to do big things. It's really, it's really a science when you start uh, pulling things apart and study what works and what doesn't, as we do in, in how big things get done in the book. And, and Elon Musk is probably maybe the single person on the planet right now that best gets this, you know, and has put it to good use in SpaceX in in Tesla and in, 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 in his solar, uh, Tesla Solar Company and so on, and, and other, other companies that he started. And um, I'm actually reading uh, the, the new biography that just the came Isaacson out last book, week. Yeah. I'm, on, I'm on page 425 already, you know, so uh, that just goes to document how fascinating that story is. Yeah, and of course, Walter Isaacson uh, also wrote the biography of, of Steve Jobs, I know you've got some examples of uh, Apple in your book, too. I I'm guessing that for you, Jobs and, uh, and Musk are similar in the sense that they were only really interested in big things. Anything that isn't big bores them. Yeah, I think that is true. Uh, I mean, work-wise, I mean, they, ha they have, uh, you know, families and stuff, too, that, that clearly also interest them. But... Uh, yeah, work-wise, it was about scaling up. So scale is the rage, right? And people who know how to scale up, uh, we call it smart scale up. Uh, we distinguish between smart scale up and dumb scale up. So there's a dumb way to do big projects and there's a smart way to do big projects. Both Jobs and Musk understand the smart way of doing projects. Although with Jobs and I'm guessing Musk, there's a an intuitive sense. There are no models. I mean, uh, when, when Jobs went back to Apple, of course, he reinvented the company by creating this group of outlaws who, who built some of their more innovative projects. I'm guessing there are no rules, or the only rules are there are no rules for big projects. No, in, there are in that rules. Sense. 
there are rules and, and it took Jobs a long time to find the rules. He's actually very honest about this. If you look at some of the interviews that he, he gave, that he didn't get it at first. And, and he actually needed his time in the desert or whatever it was that he called it, you know, when he was ousted from Apple and, and didn't come back for a long time. And it was only when he come, came back that he really got it, that, that it wasn't just, you know, luck and other people's help, but that he actually began to understand what it takes. So one of the things he did immediately was to simplify the product line. Then that is a rule, you know, that is, uh, that is uh, keep, keep things simple that, and, and, and do it as Legos. We talked about Legos earlier. So finally, uh, Jobs found his Legos, the few building blocks that he would build Apple with. Um, so that's just in one example. I want to talk more about Legos after the break. Uh, but before we get there, one, one final question before the break, Ben. What about the opposite, um, small things? It seems as if uh, most of us focus on small things. Is that a, a manifestation of cowardice, of an inability to be ambitious? Why, why do we, most of us preoccupy ourselves with, with small things? No, I don't think that's cowardice at all. Uh, you know, the saying God is in the detail and even Musk and Jobs, they had an incredible attention to detail. They have, Musk has an incredible attention to detail as did uh, Jobs. And uh, you need to have that in order to the, have the big things succeed. And other, and other uh, principle or rule, if you wish, to how to get big things done is built big from small so you need to look at the small act. You need to understand the small before you can do the big or you won't be successful. If you don't build big from small, you will not be successful. If you try to do a one-off big project as one big lump without having it decomposed into Legos, our data clearly shows that you're very unlikely to be successful. Well, you've done a big thing, Ben. You've written a book, uh, How Big Things Get Done, and it's on the long list for the FT Book of the Year. So you've, you've been successful with your particular big thing. We are talking with Bent Fleberg, uh, the Danish-born, Oxford-based professor of big things and, and author of big things, one of the world's leading experts, if not the world's leading expert on how to successfully make, accomplish, achieve successfully uh, big projects. I'm going to take a short break, Ben, uh, to thank our sponsor, uh, Liberties, and then we'll be back. And I want to talk more specifically about Lego and its role in, 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 in making uh, big projects successful. So we'll be back in a second, everybody. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. You can even subscribe. It's an excellent journal. We're talking with... Uh, ben Flivberg, the author of How Big Things Get Done. So, Ben, let's get down on the ground and let's start playing with our Legos. What, what, what is it about Lego and, and you're Danish? So there's clearly a connection here that makes Lego so, such an important piece, shall we say, excusing the pun, and metaphor for 
achieving big things. Yeah, so Lego, I guess everybody knows, uh, maybe not everybody knows that it's a Danish company. It's the world's largest toy company, and it's uh, based in Denmark, uh, where I'm from. And um, it's hugely successful. Um, and it's hugely successful because it's created this basic building block called the Lego now. It's not only one block, if you look at it, there's actually a whole set of different Lego blocks. But if you have a you know, box full of Legos, you can build almost anything. And uh, kids love that, grown-ups love that, nerds love that, non-nerds love it too. We use it as, as a metaphor in the book that we ask uh, any project leader, what's your Lego? What's your Lego? And if a project leader can't answer that, so that's what I do when I get out on real projects and I uh, trying to help project leaders deliver their projects better, I will uh, ask them, what's your Lego? And if they don't know, uh, I'm saying, fine, then we know where to start. We need to find out what your Lego is. If you don't have one, we need to create one because you need to build your project from Legos. And if you don't build them from Legos, if you don't build it's the project from Legos, you're not likely to be successful. Now, why is that? This has to do with learning theory. So there's something called positive learning curves and negative learning curves when you are doing things, whether it's manufacturing or projects or whatever. And uh, a positive learning curve is a learning curve where every time you do something, you get better. So you can do it cheaper and you can do it faster. This is actually something called Wright's Law, which was uh, first formulated by an airplane engineer called Wright. And he found that every time they doubled the, uh, the volume of uh, the production of planes, um, way back at the beginning of building planes uh, uh, at scale, the cost would go down around 20%. So for every batch doubling, uh, how many, ever many planes had been built until that date, they would reduce the cost by 20%. And they would be able to do the planes faster. That's a positive learning curve. That's what you want. And Legos facilitate that because when you're doing Legos, you're doing the same thing over and over. You're doing the same basic building block over and over in your project. And uh, that means that you get better and better at doing it, uh, and meaning that you're driving down cost, you're driving up quality, and you are doing things faster. The Empire State Building is an excellent example of that. Actually, when the Empire State Building was finished and it's like 122 stories high, uh, the builder said we didn't build a skyscraper. We just built the same floor 122 times. So they totally standardized the building as much as they possibly could. And when they built the first floor, it took a while, you know. Then they built the same floor again on top of the first floor and it went a little better, a little faster, a bit uh, cheaper. And uh, by the time they hit the 10th floor, they, they hit a stride and they would, they would build several floors a week, you know, which is incredible when you, when you look at it. And which is why the Empire State Building went up in under one and a half years. It's incredible. It went up. It was built on the budget. It was built on time. And of course, it's been a huge success in the sense that it uh, immediately got worldwide attention as the tallest building in the world. And even today, when it's not the tallest building in the world anymore, it's still the ultimate skyscraper. So that's a successful project for you, built by Legos. This is a, 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 an eminent example of the principle that we spell out in the book. You have to big build big, big from small. So the building is big. Each floor is a small thing. And even each floor is combined of a lot of Legos that were totally predefined, pre-produced, 
and just brought on site to be assembled. That could have been an alternative uh, title for the book, uh, Ben. What's your Lego? Yeah. Um, we considered that. We considered that as a title yeah, for the book. I'll use it for this interview. Uh, it reminds me of successful marathon ru runners. You, you yeah. treat, what, each mile or each half mile as a race in itself. Is that fair? Yes, it is. Anything you do, you can start thinking like this. After I formulated this principle for projects, I started using it for my writing. So I'm actually asking myself now when I'm writing, I'm already on the next book. And I'm thinking, what's my Lego here in this book? You know, what's the basic building block here? And I'm producing Legos to construct the book. And it gives you a freedom when you're writing that you're only thinking about the Lego that you're currently working on. You don't have the burden on your shoulders of thinking about the whole book all the time. Of course, you need to know what the book is about. But actually, you can concentrate on, on, on the next Lego, the next building block. And then, you know, you just put them all together and you get a book in the end. I wonder if there's something... I wouldn't say uniquely Danish about all this, but certainly something that uh, lends itself to, to small countries like, like Denmark. We, we've had so many conversations about Denmark implicitly on the show. Everyone says, well, yeah, I just have to become more like Denmark, with their social system, equality, civility, and all the rest of it. I'm sure you've heard it a million times before. Yeah. Is there something about Denmark, given your interest, given Lego, given the ability of, of the Danes to create big companies? I know now the, the Danish economy is dominated by, uh, I can't remember the name of the company, but it's the one uh, pioneering the new diet uh, pills. Novo Nordisk. Yeah. Is there something about a small country like Denmark? Holland also comes to mind that yeah. lends itself to this way of thinking about Lego and, and what's your, and, and, and doing things coherently and slowly, but also building big. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's something about taking the long view, you know, like the, the, the Dutch, I actually worked in the Netherlands for three years before moving to Oxford and, and know the, the Dutch fairly well. They have this long tradition of, uh, defending themselves against the ocean and, and had some mm. terrible floods. And this is, this has hardened the, you know, their thinking around how to get things right because they can't afford to get them wrong because a large part of the country is below sea level. So now they become a model for the whole world on how do you deal with that? Because a lot more of the world is going to be below sea level in the future. Right. So everybody is now mitigating against that. So, yeah, there's, there's a certain resilience, but both the Netherlands and Denmark, and you could include Sweden here and maybe Switzerland, uh, they haven't always been like this. This is something fairly recent. But admittedly, Denmark and similar countries right now are doing something right. It, it's mind-blowing when you think about it that Denmark has the largest uh, diabetes company in the world. You know, like more than 50% of all insulin is produced in Denmark by this company. Now they have this, uh, you know, obesity uh, medicine that is taking off uh, like, like wildfire right now. Lego, we already mentioned, as the world's largest company uh, in, in toys. Mask, the, 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 the world's largest shipping company, is also Danish. Carlsberg Beer, and there are lots of companies you don't hear about in, in pumps and, and thermostats and so on that are also huge so there is something there and i think it's about um it's first of all it's about collaboration so uh, mm. this is 
these are all very collaborative cultures. So that's one thing. And then it's about taking the long view. So all these companies are actually owned by foundations. So it's not one, it's not a family, you know, that is sitting on this and, and, uh, and uh, trying to milk it for profit and so on. Uh, the major part of the profit go back into a foundation that is, is, is used, you know, to further the company, but also to further uh, causes in society. So it's just a different, it's a more social way to think about business than the hardcore American way, which, I mean, also works. I mean, I'm not saying that the American way is not as good as the Scandinavian way. It depends on the criteria you look at. So cutthroat American capitalism certainly has shown that it works. That's not the kind of capitalism that the Scandinavian countries and the Netherlands are, are running. Yeah, the weird thing about America is there's this coexistence of uh, failure to get big things done, the, the New York subway, the, the infrastructure, uh, airports, lack of trains, all the rest of it, and the success of private companies. I was just uh, in, in, in the Philippines last week in Manila, and again, there's this weird sort of surreal parallel of on the one hand these huge shopping malls which clearly are manifestations of large things being successfully done and then decaying infrastructure is that a, a feature of capitalism ben a, an uncontrolled perhaps a, a neoliberal kind of capitalism that you have these the this this twin phenomenon of 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 Apple and, and Tesla working well in a culture and, 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 and the failure of public projects, whereas in Denmark, it all seems to go together. I do think that it, a certain type of capitalism, capitalism creates that kind of society where you have some you have parts of society that or the economy that work extremely well, you know, like cutting edge, world leading. And then you have parts of society that is like halfway to the third world. And that's an insult to the third world to say that because a lot of the third world is really catching up now. Yeah, we're not supposed to use the term third world, Ben, anymore. I think it's developing right. world. Developing world, right. Uh, sorry about that. Um, well, you're allowed to say it on my show. Okay, cool. Uh, but I remember when I was a doctoral and postdoctoral student at UCLA uh, in Los Angeles in the 1980s, that this was something that really struck me as a Scandinavian, that it's almost like the U.S. has decided certain parts of this society, and especially the public sector, is not allowed to work. It has to be dysfunctional. That's what it looked like to me, you know, really weird as a Scandinavian, because I knew it didn't have to be yeah. that way, right? That's where I came from. And then I went to the DMV to get my driver's license in, in Los Angeles, and it was a joke. I went to the post office. It was a joke, you know, a bureaucracy, and, and it was like a farce from some kind of... Uh, yeah, it's like Kafka. Kafka yeah, goes it's to like, the like DMV. you go like what this is this is like the yeah, we need a book I, I think your next book your next big project should be specifically on this focus on america and why americans america fails to get big things done i i mentioned i was in the philippines where you have decaying pavements and huge shopping malls uh, a year ago i was in kazakhstan which is a particularly surreal juxtaposition of complete infrastructure breakdown and chaos and no pavements and then these huge public uh, political projects what 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 does your studies say about 20th century systems like the one in Kazakhstan or Stalinism where huge projects were being successfully achieved and yet society decayed profoundly 
Well, I mean, it's not something that we have studied specifically for uh, Kazakhstan or similar countries. We have studied China a bit because China is often held up as the example, as the exemplar, actually, of how to do big projects. That and, and many people assume that China is able to do it on budget and on time. So we decided to study that, except you can't get data from China. Uh, and, and China is known for doctoring their data, so they are unreliable. And my, my Chinese colleagues told me, you know, we can't do that uh, because if the party says there's no cost overrun, there's no cost overrun. And if we come up with results, with results from our research, that shows something different, then you won't be welcome in this country anymore, Bent, and we might be out of a job. So, so we decided, okay, we're not going to do that. But then a few years later, through the back door in the World Bank, I found out through one of my postdocs here at Oxford that uh, the World Bank actually has data on China, and somehow we finagled to get access to those data. And the, the World Bank's data was their own data, so they were reliable to the level that the World Bank data are reliable. And, uh, and we used those, and we actually found that uh, China has the exact same problem with cost overruns. They do deliver faster than we do because they don't have the same environmental laws and uh, stakeholder engagement and, and laws regarding how to expropriate people's properties and so on. So they do, th do projects faster, but not, not with uh, less cost overrun. Well, finally, Ben... Um... As I said, I'm going to New York next week. If I uh, at the end of the week, if I bump into some of the the people running the city, what would you tell them about getting big projects done? Well, what what is the way forward for a large American city like New York, or for that matter, San Francisco, where everything seems to be broken? I think there's a real need for a rethink in the United States, and I was really delighted that recently. He, the Buddy Judge, the U.S. Department of Transport. Uh, yeah, he gets things done. He's one of the few people who seems to know. He, he, he invited me for a session like we are having now. He and I discussing for a full hour, how can we rethink this for the United States for transport infrastructure? That's what the United States needs to do. It needs to get more people like that who are willing to rethink how it's done because the way it's done now does not work. And our book is an attempt to put up a template for such a rethink. And Buddy Judge got that, you know, which I was uh, I was knocked over by by learning, you know. So what you're saying really, Ben, is that if you want to get big things done, you need to read your book, How to Get Big Things Done. I like that. <laughs>